When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Rolling Stone Music Now. I'm Rolling Stone executive editor Nathan Brackett. Today we're going to talk about the biggest reunion of the year, Guns N' Roses. We're also going to answer reader mail about the late George Martin. But first, we're going to talk about what we're listening to in the office. I'm here with staff writer Brittany Spanos and contributing editor John Dolan. Hey, guys. Hey. Hey. How you doing? (laughs) All right. All right. Brittany, you suggested this new song from uh, Andrew Bird, Mm -hmm. which I'm enjoying quite a bit. Yeah, he has a new album coming out on April 1st called Are You Serious? And a lot of the album sort of was inspired by marriage and having a kid and all of that. And there's this really cool semi-bitter love song that he has with Fiona Apple. and Which I love. It's like a little bit unusual for Andrew Bird, right? Yeah. I mean, it's like he's, I mean, for people who don't know him, mean, he's this super talented, like multi-instrumentalist. Mm-hmm. I, I don't even know how many albums he's had at this point, but he's yeah, been doing he's done it for a, lot. a while. He just released one last year that was more experimental. And um, this one's more straightforward, kind of folky. Yeah, this seems like the most like straightforward song I've heard from him in a while. Yeah. And it's called Left-Handed Kisses. And it's just this really cute, fun kind of playful duet between him and Fiona. I don't believe everything happens for a reason. To us romantics out here, that amounts to high treason. He um, recently performed on Ellen. He had this amazing violin solo during the breakdown that was just incredible the dude, the dude to watch. can bring it on the violin. <laughs> <laughs> I love songs where like couples are talking to each other and mm-hmm. this is clearly it. Like he's like clearly a musician and he's saying you got me writing love songs and she's <laughs> like they're just not enough. You know, you got to like do a little better. Yeah. Uh, it sounds like they're definitely like maybe not long for each other. Yeah, what do you, you think of this you, one? Yeah, yeah. I like it a lot. It's it's funny. It's funny. You're right because it's playful, but it's not pleasant in the way he's making yeah. it. Pleasant. It's like dark. <laughs> right. and it's funny, and, it, and you want to see sort of the six part Netflix show about this couple's life and like, what, what led to this and sort of. Um, you know, it does. You're right. It reminds you of like George Jones and Tammy Wynette, and it's got right. that kind of country feel. It's nice to see her sort of sing. I mean, she's always direct and intense, but it's nice to see her, especially in the video, be so kind of mordant and aggressive. And it's it, it's a really entertaining sort of juxtaposition of what you'd expect from these people. Um, and she's just so awesome. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, yeah. like, she's going to, like, bring so much to any song yeah, that she's on. Yeah, and she's got a little bit of grit in her voice with this one. Like, it's yeah. a little angry. And especially during the live performance, she had, like, a little bit of, like, super sourness and, like, anger towards Andrew while she was singing it, which was really great. <laughs> yeah, she really throws herself into the video <laughs> as well. Her hair and she's yeah. kind of the, the cold stare and, the you know. And you wonder, like, uh, I, didn't, I guess I didn't really know that they were collaborators or they had collaborated in the past or if they had any kind of background, but they really have a lot of emotional connection in this song. And it bodes well for this record because you're right, his records tend to be 
nice, you know, and you wonder what this will be like. Well, I think they're both part of that kind of L.A.-based yeah. scene, which include like Blake Mills and just super talented musicians. And I, I can, uh, I'm can, i happy Brian, that they I did guess. this. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> John, the, the song that you brought to the table is from a new group, Big Thief. I'm, I'm loving this. Yes. They're a band from a place called Brooklyn, New York. Um, <laughs> one of those. And Up they, and coming. Uh, yeah, exactly. And they're on the recording for Saddle Creek Records, which was best known for the place that kind of gave us Connor Oberst right. back about 10 years ago, a little before that. And they have uh, a little bit of that. Yeah, I mean, definitely. That, yeah. She know. sounds, I don't know, actually, I don't know where, she, the singer's name is Adrian Linker, and I don't know where she's from originally, but definitely a Midwestern kind of stuff. I don't, they don't even have a Wikipedia page yet, no, which I love. That's a, yeah. that's a new band, a band yeah. camp, not a Wikipedia. That's when you know you've got something <laughs> really hot. Um, but the record is coming out in late May. Um, it's called Masterpiece. They had a song out called Masterpiece. Most of her songs tend to deal with the dark side of love and loss, and this was about sort of seeing your the person you just broken up with, new person, and they remind you of you. Wait, I, w- I guess I would say this is kind of the theme for today, right? Yeah. Like the, <laughs> right. dangerous <laughs> love, like, dark love. Yeah. We try to find a theme. Axel Rose's yeah. relationship to every member of Guns N' Roses would also fit into this. Um, <laughs> this new song is called Real Love, and it's this kind of starts off soft, it starts off quiet. It's basically a child's view of domestic abuse and kind of switches very poetically character and position and sort of perspective. I'll always love you. Having your face hit, having your lips split by the one who loves you. As the song builds, it goes into this kind of crazy, intense, sort of very tonight's the night, or uh, you know, uh, on the beach style kind of guitar mania that recalls Which kind is of awesome. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's really, it really kind of it, the sort of logic of the song is interesting because it is this kind of it's quiet and reflectful. And it could be a folk song, but then the guitars kind of add a violence in the verses, and so it's it's a you really kind of compared song. it to like oh, a crazy horse with like a little bit of mumblecore. Yeah, or it's, it's like a little that. bit of a mumblecore crazy horse vibe. And this record that's going to come out is really fantastic. And she's definitely in this sort of like Sharon Van Etten, Waxahachie sort of mold of these kind of singer-songwriters who go in and on yeah. the sort of like intense side of romance and disaffection and stuff like that. It's so really awesome great. like female front women it's, in rock and indie rock right now. It's mm-hmm. true. I mean, there's just, it's the combination of, you know, it's a great guitar band and a great sort of poetic singer-songwriter band kind of at the same time. And it's a really wonderful record. All right. And then the final uh, pick was something both of you guys suggested. It's from Anoni, formerly known as Anthony Haggerty of Anthony and the Johnsons, yeah. uh, one of the great voices out there. Yeah, one of my the favorite. The last couple of decades. Yeah. yeah, definitely one of the most powerful vocalists. I mean, like Anoni always brings a bunch of drama to her songs, just really subtly in the way that she delivers them. And Drone Bomb Me is going to be on hopelessness and. It's this just super powerful song from the perspective of a child as well, a child whose family has been drone bombed. And so this is a girl that is begging to be drone bombed as well. It's just this incredibly powerful message. And the video starred Naomi Campbell delivering the song. And it's just an It's really voice devastating. Yeah. yeah. Drone bomb me. From the mountains and into the sea. I remember when when Aunt, the the band that she used to front, Anthony and the Johnsons, when their first record came out, it was "I Am a Bird" in 2005, and just that voice, like it was really like this kind of you're hearing a cross between like Boy George and Yoko Ono or something. It was really unique and arresting. And there's 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 places sometimes with her where the artiness can you go pretty deep, but in this case, the power of this song, and also you think of songs about 
bombing and things like tend to be intense and violent to sort of match the sort of sense. But this fact that death by drone is this new secret automated ever-present clandestine thing and the, the music itself is subtle you know, it's it's extremely powerful and works its way up on you in a way that you you know you're not expecting with this powerful voice. It's really an incredible song. Mm-hmm. And she's got a new album coming. Yeah, Hopelessness comes out in May, and she's working with Hudson Mohawk and Onotrix Point Never on it. These Which is two- an interesting mix, right? Yeah. I mean, Hudson yeah. Mohawk, former Kanye West mm-hmm. yeah. collaborator. The kind of electronic elements of it are really subtle and beautiful and really add to her voice and kind of meshes so organically together. And so it's very surprising and cool. Yeah, it's the right fit for her, but you wouldn't really kind of on paper wonder if that would be the right fit, but it comes out great. Mm -hmm. Well, all right. Brittany Spanos, John Dolan, thanks for coming. You bet. And we're back. That was the opening chords of Welcome to the Jungle by Guns N' Roses, which is very likely what a lot of people are going to be hearing on April 8th when the full Guns N' Roses are reunited. Well, not quite the full. Semi-full. Semi-full. I'm, I'm here with Andy Green. Hi there. Associate Editor, Rolling Stone, and Brian Hyatt. Hello. Hey, Brian. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> a senior writer, Rolling Stone, and we're going to talk about probably the biggest rock reunion of this year. I am not convinced that it's definitely happening Until they walk on stage together and I'm watching it on Periscope or whatever, I'm not going to believe that this is happening. We are talking about Guns N' Roses. Uh, Listeners at home may well know the answer to this question by the time they listen to this podcast, whether Guns N' Roses have actually gotten back together. You Uh, you really think they're not going to show up, Andy? I think they probably will. (laughs) They'll be sued. There'll be contracts. But, you know, it would be very tough to pull out at this point. But Axel does not give a shit and very well might just say, I can't do this. It's possible. He Hmm. follows his own (laughs) way. Yes. No, the shows will happen and they'll probably be pretty incredible. But but there's so many questions. It's so confusing because they've said nothing. Right. But the key key of this is Axel and Slash and uh, Duff McKagan. Duff McKagan are back together at Guns N' Roses. In terms of reunions that you thought would never happen, Andy, where does this stack up? With, like, the Smiths? Well, uh, this felt possible because Duff was back in the band and Izzy has guested with Guns N' Roses a few times. This seemed possible because there was so much money at stake and they kept getting closer to it. So on so, the unlikelihood yeah. scale of, like, 10 being never, yeah. never happened, Smiths, Johnny Marr, and right. Marcy hate each other, one being... There would be, like, the Kinks. Know, the Kinks, yes. yeah, who have plans to, to reunite. It seems like the Smiths hate each other in, in some kind of British way that we can't understand. Right. It's unknowable <laughs> to us. Well, there is something we will both, never and whereas, whereas this is, you know, it's just two American guys that hate well, each other. And, figure it out. Yeah. and I think both Morrissey and Axel, they are both pretty crazy. But Axel is more interested in making lots of money than Morrissey is. I think that's a slight difference. Crazy right. so harsh, Andy. <laughs> Words hurt. Can you give us a little bit of the history yeah, of I the mean, animosity? They last played together in 1993 at the end of the Use Your Illusion tour. They were one of the biggest rock bands in the world at that point. They were playing stadiums. They had huge hits. And then it just completely fell apart. And by the time the, the band was back in the late 90s, it was just Axel. And there was a new album eventually. There's been a ton of concerts with just Chinese Axel. Chinese Democracy. Yeah, that was 2008. So there's been a ton of shows with this new Guns N' Roses, but it kept various getting... Various iterations. Yeah, was, yeah there yeah. were various guitarists. It's changed a lot. It's had but uh, it, Tommy Stinson. Yeah, it was Tommy Stinson was there he, for He was like actually the, the only kind of 
constant. Right. Well, and Pittman, I think. Well, fair. Right. <laughs> Pittman. And, yes. and Dizzy Reed. Yeah. But it's yeah. been <laughs> Axel's show. It's been, it's been basically Axel Rose and yeah, his band of helpers. Yeah, it became like Nine Inch Nails, where it's just synonymous with one person. Right. But what happened was when they first came back, it was a big deal. They were playing big places. Slowly, it became less of a thing. They were doing the same exact show over and over and over right. again. Right. Like a lot of people might not realize that yeah. Guns N' Roses have been playing pretty steadily. Playing, I mean, what uh, yeah. was the most recent gig with the the Axel version? In summer of 2014. Right. And by that point, they were doing Vegas residencies. Right. Yeah. When they played in New York the first time, it was the Garden. When they came back the last few times, it was Roseland Ballroom and stuff. I mean, it was a shrinking affair because you can't keep doing the same show and expect to see big crowds each time. He had been showing up on time, though, right? Axl Rose, legendarily late. Yeah. Know, sort of. He's he gotten better. The, on time, is, I mean, the shows were still starting at midnight, right? Well, I think increasingly they were going better. I think on the last couple of tours, he was mostly on time. In like 2010, whatever, I don't know the exact years, there were some shows that were past midnight. Was he calling them at midnight? Were they supposed no, to start at midnight? No, they were supposed okay, to start at right. like 8, their opening bands. And <sighs> he's so awesome that he'd gone after midnight. So it, it would start when the curfew it, it, it was already in place. Yeah, I mean, I, so, I experienced this. I mean, you, yeah. you would wait I, in the Meadowlands in 2006. I mean, it, there was like an endless... Array of opening acts, Papa Roach and stuff. I like just torture. Uh, and you're That's sitting Papa there. Roach's next episode. Yeah, like, yeah. Uh, <laughs> Jesus. And and um, and and so you're sitting there. You're sitting there, and then you know he. This is keep in mind. This is the Meadowlands. It's the middle of nowhere. You know, you have everyone. Everyone has to, and everyone's right. adults. Everyone yeah, has there's to. There's only one way out. You're gonna go to the parking lot. Yeah, 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 no, yeah, it's like, yeah. So he goes on, you know, probably twelve oh five. I mean, so yeah. the show ended at two in the morning on like a Tuesday. Right. You know, I mean right. that that was. But honestly, that show was very good. I thought that show was good. I really enjoyed it. But for most people, the thing is like, where's Slash? Uh, Duff. Right. I love Duff, and we all know that the full lineup would in- also include Izzy and either you know Matt Sorum and or uh, Stephen Adler. But uh, for the, for the average fan, they just want to see Axel and Slash. Yeah, together. the key was Axel and Slash. And you were saying, Andy, that maybe Duff was kind of maybe the mediator. He was the sign. Yeah, well, Axel had been saying for years that he wasn't mad at Duff. He even said maybe eight years ago that he'd be willing to record with Duff again. And so Duff was kind of in both camps. And then maybe – Well, Duff is a lovely guy, right? Yeah. I mean, he's like – you know, he's he's a journalist. We can all relate to it. He's written a column for a Seattle Alternative Weekly – He'll be wearing glasses yeah. if you meet him. He's just a really nice guy. Yeah, I've had great yeah. times with Duff. <laughs> Duff is a very nice guy. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then Duff's band got a slot as the opening act before Guns N' Roses a few years ago. And then Duff came on stage and did a few songs. And they started talking again, and just slowly he came back and into the Stinson, fall. And then Stinson had yeah. to miss a tour for because of the replacements. Right. So basically, my theory is that Paul Westerberg is actually responsible for all of this, <laughs> because I'm not even joking. Okay. So, right. so I think that Paul, Paul Westerberg, you know, the, the replacements united, and right. finally Tommy Stinson, who had been trying, you for know, people at home, Paul Westerberg, singer of the replacements, singer of the replacements with Tommy Stinson's original band, right? And it's very clever, by the way, of Axel to get up sort of punk-based bassist to replace Duff McKagan because Duff was from a Seattle punk scene, so he was very carefully casting someone in exactly the same mold. Right. Uh, he's not a dummy. That's incredibly right. smart. But anyway, right. so Tommy had to uh, miss a tour. And then Axe was like, hmm, who could I get to play bass? And then there's Duff. And then Duff was back. This is And this, by right. the way, shows the 
diminished interest in the sort of new GNR that Duff was back in the band and no one really yeah, made it a big, really they were, big yeah. rock well, They were playing right. South America and whatnot. Right, it was right, sort of off right. the grid. So, but, yeah. and so what we think happened, right, yeah. Andy, is what, what did Duff probably that say to, if to Duff, Axel? If Duff was smart, he would wait a few weeks. He would get Axel comfortable, you know, to be his friend again and be like, you know what? Slash isn't that bad. <laughs> You know right. what? Right. I think Slash is not the worst guy in the world, and maybe because Axel had really said awful stuff well, about him. He yeah, called well, him a cancer. Where did it? Like, where did things go wrong? Do, is there something you can point to with Axel and Slash? I mean, some of this we're not going to know, but well, I think there's this whole missing years period. There's the wilderness years of Guns N' Roses from '93 when the tour ended till like '95 when Slash left, then '97 when Duff left where they were really attempting to record a new album and it just fell completely apart. If you read Slash's book, like, Axel begged him not to quit because he knew it would be a huge symbolic blow. Right. And then he left the group and started talking some smack about him, and Axel, he can't handle that. And then when, when GNR, they came back and played a Vegas gig, Slash joked about trying to actually go to the concert and was in Vegas at the time. Oh, and yeah. And it's just sort of at a key moment when the group had... Yeah, he actually showed up and was barred right. he from the door. Yeah, 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 he was barred. And so it got, got, it got really so much right. press, and he was trolling Axel. When Axel had to prove his band was legit, all the attention is Slash was not let in the door. And right. I'm sure Axel went ballistic. Right. That He's became like, the news. Yeah, it right. became the thing. And so... But, but I mean, just because I talked to those guys about what happened in the 90s, Axel wasn't sure what he wanted. They actually had a tough thing because, you know, Appetite was this classic album. Use Your Illusion had good songs on it, but it also felt like... Even they don't think it's as good as Appetite. And then they, you know, they right. did the Spaghetti Incident, uh, the the right. uh, coverage album. And then it was just sort of like, what do we do next? They knew it was like the night, you know, grunge had happened. The Spaghetti like, Incident has something to recommend it, doesn't it? There no. are a couple. Yeah, of, no, 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 wait, no. Oh, the oh, okay, it's great. I'm just kidding. It's I'm a just, great no, human no. being cover by yeah. the New York Dolls. Right. I think that album is underappreciated. It's crazy. And there's that new guitarist on it. It's yeah. been totally for anyway. Yeah, it's the, really the, getting the off track. Right. Yeah. Okay, so <laughs> anyway, yeah. so was, but they were trying to figure out what to do, and it was like sort of Axel was bringing in different guitarists to work to try to like quote unquote work with Slash, and that was a disaster. He even brought in Zach Wild, uh, yeah. the Ozzy's guy, and was and apparently that was like a nightmare. And so it was just I think Slash was just like I don't have a creative. I'm not allowed to. You know, it, it felt like Axel was trying to control the band at that point. So I think every hard it. rock band has their Zach Wild like six months, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, but right, sorry. You yeah. Got yeah. Anyway, so that, that but basically it was like Axel wanted control as the way the other people painted. He might say something entirely different, and uh, I'd love to uh, hear Axel's side. Maybe someday he'll share that with us. Right. So anyway, the other guys felt they had to leave, and he's and Axel always said, "Listen, they all left voluntarily." You know, like Duff. <laughs> yeah, you know, well, which not, is technically right. true. Like, well, not Stephen Adler. Right. Right. Well, well <laughs> Stephen Adler was gone. A long time ago, the yeah. storm, the exact moment when Sorum left is unclear to me. Um, that, that's much more unclear. Well, Duff, actually, yeah. speaking of Sorum, yeah, yeah, right, it's very hard to get some reporting on Guns and Roses was, these days. There, there's a kind of a cone of silence around Axel. Yeah. He leads what some people have described as a maybe a bit of a Howard Hughes like existence in a compound somewhere yes. in California, uh, in, 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 in Southern Los California. Angeles. Yeah, but we managed to get get a little yeah, bit it of was fresh reporting. One of the most <laughs> surreal Andy. moments of my life. I was getting lunch with Brian. We were talking <laughs> about in, in, in Rockefeller Center. Center. Yeah, yeah, we were in Midtown. 
Uh, we were on Sixth Avenue. We were talking about <laughs> Guns N' Roses because I was reporting a Guns N' Roses. You're the Rolling Stone Yes, yeah, so I, yeah. I was reporting a story on them. I was hitting brick walls just everywhere. We're talking, Actually just talking about yeah, it. Yeah, and we yeah. name-checked Matt Sorum. I said to Brian, do you think Matt Sorum <laughs> is going to be there? We're talking about him. And we're walking back. As we're mid-discussion about GNR, I go, wait a minute. That's Matt Sorum. <laughs> <laughs> on the streets of Manhattan, street. Midtown Manhattan. He was the guest drummer on Seth Meyers that week. And Damn. I stopped in my tracks, and Brian, he went like, hey, Matt Sorum. <laughs> <laughs> and he stopped, and he was like, hey, guys. <laughs> and we, you know, introduced him, said who we were, and we're like, you know, what's going on? And so he gave us a little, he, he, he said his, his kind of money quote that we actually used in the magazine was like, you never know. Um, <laughs> he, and he, so you asked him specifically. Yeah, so he said, oh, are you yeah. going to be part of this or yeah, what? Yeah, yeah. Never know. The, the, yeah. the answer, as best as we can tell, is no. He is not. Part and that of was the only quote from Matt Sorum, right? 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 yeah. or from yeah. any member of the band, yeah. right? Yeah. Right. He, he is. He is. I think you need uh, to yeah. embellish the story a little bit, though, Andy. We need to, there needs to be a little bit more of a heads up. Yeah. That kind of like I don't know. You were scanning a corner of the street, or well, we were, I don't know. Yeah, like, I did, he he walked more right, detail. He walked <laughs> right <laughs> past us. He was wearing a hat. He seemed shocked to be recognized by anybody. Right. That's true. He's, he's not, not getting recognized by a lot. Only so many people are going to recognize him. He was holding multiple coffee cups in in his hand. And he, he he had a hat on and a big coat. I totally think it's a great story. And, okay. yes. and to be yeah. fair, I was able. To, I said, you know, hey man, I did I did your last the last Velvet Revolver story right. in in Bronx Stone. So it was right. he he like right. then possibly remember. You know, it wasn't like right. it, like like we weren't yeah. ra- complete randos. He gave you that like celebrity as, nod, yeah, like yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But uh, but, uh, but I mean, you know, he knew that story, yeah. so it wasn't like right. we were like yeah. completely. But but, but it, you know, anyway, but it, right. he materialized out of thin air as yeah. we were talking about him. That was the most amazing. All right, so so this is yeah, this is amazing. Yeah. And the, no, other, that, that, that first, yeah, the first piece of reporting was within like maybe you know five hundred feet or a quarter mile of the office. This yes. actually, the other piece actually happened in the office. In the office, yeah. I was on Twitter maybe I don't know three about three weeks ago. I got a tr- I got a tweet from an account that was called Izzy Stratlin nine nine nine, and it was it was like, hey Andy, that this is Izzy. I love to talk to you. <laughs> And I presumed it was a joke for a lot of reasons. Right. Biggest one, he's one of the most reclusive <laughs> members of any rock band I've ever heard of. Had not previously been on Twitter, to he your knowledge. He'd never been right? on Twitter. Yeah. I can't yeah. recall an interview he's done in 20 years or so. Yeah, the last we heard from was when I was texting with him in 2006 yeah. or seven. Yeah. Where was that? Uh, t- that was 2007. Yeah, yeah, trying to get him to participate in the Appetite. And, and uh, that didn't, I mean, he would like, it's this weird thing where he would text back, he's perfectly friendly, but wouldn't do an interview. Yeah. And then there was a, then he thought I was Axel for a while and asked yeah. me a weird question, but that was another. He thought you were Axel. Yes. Okay. Yeah. That's anyway, right. that, that's yeah, it. Right. Yeah. Anyway, uh, so the fans are freaking out about this on the fan forum because they have a huge fan community. Yeah. There's a public I, conversation. Yeah, but right. I presumed it was some jokester because it's right. it's Twitter. Totally unverified. You know, unverified. It was just a random, random new right. like, Didn't have the blue check. So I yeah. was all sarcastic back. I'm like, I'm like, hi Izzy. I can't imagine that there's any scenario <laughs> that you're a fake Izzy because <laughs> oh, who no. lies on the internet? And he goes like, no, it's me. I want to talk to you. I just emailed you. I, I'm like, that's news to me. I don't see any email. And we're talking back and forth. <laughs> and he the, emailed what? Like the letters. He at turns Rolling Stone out he emailed RS editors at RollingStone.com. Wow, which is and just the general account where yeah. we get right. letters. No, we get no, a billion no, notes to yeah. everyone. If you're trying to reach someone, don't. Ever do that? No, That's yeah, not a good yeah, way yeah, to. Yeah, yeah. No. So this whole conversation <laughs> is public, and there's like a 50-page thread on my GNR forum all about it. And every tweet I put is being obsessed over, and I'm just thinking it's a jokester. And then I go home that night, and he goes, "I I want to call you." So I said, "Okay, you know." Now we're on DM. And I send him my I send him this my phone number. Actually. Yeah. <laughs> I send him my work phone number, which was a mistake. I should have him call my cell, I guess. And he goes, Great, I just called you. 
So I'm I go, a guy with a voice box calling Carolina. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> so I dialed into my office line, and there he was. And I'm like, that really sounds like him. And then I went on YouTube and found some interviews that he gave in the 90s. It was the same exact voice. And I'm like, holy shit, this is Izzy. <laughs> should we play some of the uh, clips? Yeah, yeah, we should let's play, play some of Okay, it. and here it is. Hey, Andy, it's Izzy calling. It's uh, Tuesday, like 5.30, California time. Uh, it's me. I uh, know there's a lot of questions you know, regarding my Twitter account, but it's me. I opened a Twitter account. Uh, there was just so much speculation going on regarding my involvement and, you know, studio recording. There's so much just misinformation. So I wanted to clarify that, I, that I'm not in the studio with anybody recording uh, any of the Guns N' Roses guys. At this point in time, I'm not involved in the, uh, the actual shows. So anyway, I can't do an interview with you right now, but I wanted to get that information out just to let people know that a lot of the stuff they're reading is not true. And I think the Twitter account will be fun. And uh, I might post some stuff on there this week, you know, throughout the week. Anyway, I hope you are. I just wanted to confirm it to me. That was uh, the second piece of fresh reporting from another, the only other maybe fresh reporting yes, from any other members of Gun, the original Guns N' Roses Axel in Rolling slash, Stone. Because Axel, Slash, and Duff have said not a word. Slash shared the Coachella poster on Instagram with a smiley face. So the extent of Slash's public comment has been one little emoji. <laughs> and, and in context, I mean, this is not uncommon for bands embarking on a big tour reunion. They don't want to mess things, things up. Things are fragile. There's a lot of contracts Usually, are signed. They don't know how it's going to go. But there's no precedent yeah. for this. But like with Van Halen, they had a press conference. With right. other groups, they put a picture out. They do some interviews. They'll have a press conference with Simon and Garfunkel or the police. They have a huge press conference to get attention for the tour. Well, the, the central question, right, is or yeah. one of the central questions is, are Axel and Slash actually reconciled? Or is this kind of purely a business thing? Like, can they, are they talking? Are they, can they joke together? Can they interact? Or is it just like, you know, contractually, Slash may not look at Axel. Yeah, I wonder. Yeah. That's a big question. And right? I would suspect they're probably not great buddies. I mean, actually, you know, Courtney Barnett in the New Rolling Stone had a great kind of, she was asked about the Guns N' Roses reunion. She's a mm-hmm. singer-songwriter, and she's a big uh, Guns N' Roses fan. And she said, the thing about reunions is, it's like your divorced parents getting back together. It might be like a wish fulfillment thing for you. It might be yeah. fun for you, but it's probably not fun for them. Yeah. You know? Well, <laughs> and the weird reality, it's not going to sound that different. Slash is an awesome guitar player, but he brought in dudes that could play like him for the most part. You know? it, might, it, might, it, it might sound more different than you think. I, I, I hope so. To see. I, you know, the one thing I thought about is, you know, Izzy's motivations for reaching out to you. Now, yeah. one, he pointed fans to a couple of videos he recorded of cover songs. And if you look at the lyrics of the cover songs, they seem to imply a certain discontent with someone <laughs> in your life who might be trying to control you or making decisions you're not happy about. So I, what, hmm. I, what I would bet is this wasn't Izzy being like, no, no one ever contacted me. I've never had anything to do with this. But rather... They made me an insulting offer. Right. They didn't involve me at the beginning, but they yeah. kind of half-heartedly tried to pull me in. I would bet that there was something that this – he seems not right. thrilled with the situation. Right. And this is a little bit of projection. I can't be sure. But right. it, that's the – it seems like something went down that he's not – or if they – possibly if they didn't ask him and he's mad about that. But, they, but, they, but there's some yeah. – he's definitely not like right. a happy man about this situation. Yeah, right? that's why it's interesting. Because right. I think if I'm Izzy, I'm going to think – I'm a co-founder of this band. I was there long before Slash. I was a key writer of, of, of most of the famous songs. I deserve as much as Slash. Right. 
and probably he's not getting offered that. Right. Well, a, that's, but on a yeah. marketing level, he doesn't. It's it's sort of like yeah, he's whatever his actual importance on a marketing level, he doesn't have nearly the brand equity of Slash. And so if you are the guy deciding who gets what, you know, you might not. You know, right. and back in the day, they all split it. It's easy to forget. They once were like a band band who yeah. all got Did they actually equal, split things equally back in the day, supposedly? In, in yeah. The, before things went south, in right. the very beginning, then things went started to go yeah, nuts. Right. But they were actually a band but, at one point. Right. And, and, and this like is actually band. not uncommon yeah. either, though, with reunions. It's yeah. like because there are certain key people on. Oh, yeah. Well, Axel well, is the most Axel, key person right. and then followed by But Slash. also Axel, Axel right. now, the difference now is, and this is one of the things that happened as things went south, is Axel, of course, owns the name Guns N' Roses. Right. So now anyone else is his employee. Yeah. Right. So it's a very different yeah. situation. Right. Well, a different and, dynamic. And yeah. what's amazing is Steven Adler has said nothing. This is a guy back in the day. I get on the phone in five minutes. Steven Adler being the, the original right. drummer. The drummer. And he was had and, a pretty fraught. Uh, Yes. Yeah, he, he had a tough time. He was actually Substance thrown out of. Issues. He was yeah. listen. He was the guy thrown out of Guns and Roses for doing too many drugs. You can imagine right. how many drugs that was. That's sort yeah. of the emphasis. But because he's not complaining, everyone's best guess is that he's going to do that thing where they bring him out for three songs. You know, it's not like right. he can't play. You could be mine. He's not going to play anything from Use Your Illusion. Right. But he can still play the appetite well, stuff. And so they'll bring him out and they'll be yeah. like, "Ladies and gentlemen, special guest Stephen Adler." People go nuts right. and then he goes off the stage and they pay him something. He's happy. Everyone's happy. Well, that brings up the other questions yeah. like some, some of the other unanswered yeah. questions how are they going to handle like Chinese democracy songs I bet they play them I bet that you really I think they're gonna I think they're just I think Axel's like I want to play them and it's like it's his band and Slash I think will play, play better I and think just they will go play better. With it. Yeah. these are songs that Slash has never played on yeah Slash never played on I bet you they don't play them I, I I admit that it's an issue of you know that that is hard to predict, oh. but I, I think that they. I play guess them. Duff has played them. Duff has played them. Slash will just he'll just play them. He can't like play all that weird Bumblefoot stuff, which I, I dig. But but I mean, but and but, how does Bumblefoot fit into all this? But, he's he's out. Let me tell you something. Bumblefoot is a really good guitar player. Yes, and, and I'm told a really sweet guy. But he but is anyway, out. Yeah, yeah. So but, DJ but, uh, Ashba's out and Bumblefoot's out. Yes, this is the interesting thing. So there's a certain extent to this is really a hybrid of the new Guns and Roses and the old Guns. Because the drummer is the guy who's been playing as, as best as we can tell is going to be Frank Ferrer, who is the new Guns N' Roses drummer. He's he's not he's from the the, old, right. the new lineup. So there's a certain extent to which it's a quote unquote reunion and actually more of a it's more a, of a, a composite or yeah. it's kind the of last or it's the last lineup with, with special guest Slash. Right. <laughs> Just backing up for a minute, the, like the big question, like what do Guns N' Roses mean in 2016? How do they how do they stack up? They're the Led Zeppelin of the '80s in a lot of ways, or the Rolling Stones of the '80s, or something, or the worst the case scenario, '80s, but yeah, the so Aerosmith yeah, of the yeah. late '80s. Well, it was like '86, whatever. <laughs> well, that, that, that's not when they were. That's yeah, not they when they had torn hits in by '88. Okay, I mean, yeah. I, I would say they're almost. They were the last, you know, hard rock band before Nirvana. The last, yeah. like, kind of classic, unironic. You know, after Nirvana, you kind of couldn't be a, a hard rock band without it being a little. They're right. being a feeling like there's a little bit of a shtick right. or something, a little but bit of retro. They, Guns N' Roses were like the last great it. traditional yeah. hard rock band. They, Is it, would you guys agree? They with? were the last. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I, yeah I've, but, I've written about this before, but it was like basically like Appetite for Destruction was sort of the last like classic rock, classic rock right. album. You know, like it right. was. It was. You know, it also was by the way recorded on tape. You know, and edited and like so it was like kind of like the the last before everything. I mean, you know, everything's been sort of grandfathered in grunge too, but it, they do feel like the last part of that, the last gasp of that right. era. You know, the, uh, 
look at how many Facebook fans they have. They remain phenomenally popular. Yeah, and you know? their T-shirts are all over town. Those songs are everywhere. Sweet Child of Mine is this sing-along classic now. Like, kids sing it in schools. It's just everywhere. What? <laughs> no. What are you no, talking about? No, I've seen Children's Choir sing it. I, I, I've seen YouTube clips of that. I'll show it to you later, bro. <laughs> I don't think like a lot of like younger people differentiate between them and like Led Zeppelin in the sense of the classic rock continuum. No, it's true. People yeah, it's, are, they have well ascended be, yeah, to that level that, in for hindsight. sure. And, and I, yeah. I think their brand name is actually kind of synonymous with just rock. Like so, it's like right. like Guns and Roses. Like it's just like you know, it, it, it's just yeah. so they, they have a lot to live up to, basically. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, the funny thing would be they come out of Coachella and all the kids are over at the dance tent and you, they're like they're like being drowned out by like, it's gonna be a big deal. <laughs> but it's but the rollout's been weird. That there's the two Vegas shows, there's the two Coachellas, and then there's Mexico, it's two stadiums. But they haven't rolled out a tour yet. Well, what's gonna happen next? All right, so, yeah. all right, so yeah, let maybe let's end with that. What what do we think is gonna it, well, happen like, after Coachella the and the fact Vegas shows? There's been no big stadium tour announced yet. It could mean they're waiting to Coachella for all the attention. Or it could mean they can't agree on anything, and they're having trouble like figuring out a launch. It could route. be both. It could be it works both ways. That basically, like, if Coachella goes well, then they they have all these dates. I'm sure they have dates blocked out. So it's like, first of all, Coachella goes well, but they might as well announce it after Coachella to get yeah. the to, to swell of attention. Like, the, if I wouldn't be surprised if the morning after Coachella all goes well, they announce a huge tour. Right. You know, that, right. that's probably the plan. But they probably reserve the right to like pull, pull the plug. <laughs> yeah. You know, well, like that's, and you know. they don't want to get too greedy. If they try and play fifty stadiums and charge three fifty a ticket, that's gonna that's know. pushing it. And the question yeah. is, how damaged is the brand name? There's been so many GNR shows. I don't think it matters. I think it's like uh, a, yeah. a big it's, it's a complete a big reboot. red reset button. It, it just, must have it hurt was, it a little bit. It like must ten percent, but it doesn't matter. I think most the the, the nice thing is. Yeah, I think either, a lot of yeah. people weren't even aware that these other tours were going on. Like a, a lot of people, like, right. for a lot of a lot of like people, must be like vaguely, like vaguely, kind of thought maybe there was something going on. But now this is this will get all the attention and it will just be big, big right? Reset. It's like a yeah. light switch is on. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So there we go. Well, there it is, Andy Green. Yes. Thank you for coming on. No problem, Brian Hyatt. Thank you. All right, we'll see. All right. And we're back with our reader mail segment. I'm here with contributing editor David Brown. What's up, David? What's up, Nathan? (laughs) (laughs) David just wrote a really nice piece about the late George Martin, a Beatles producer who passed away this month. And um, predictably, we've already gotten a fair amount of reader mail. David, before we get into it, though, help people understand, like, what do you see as George Martin's importance? You know, like a lot of people don't realize they see him as, as this this dashing guy who is considerably older than the Beatles, kind right. of from another generation. You know, he came from this era of Abbey Road where people still wore lab coats and ties. Yeah. I mean, like, what what right. what do you think he really he really did? You know, he let the Beatles become the Beatles, and that sounds like such a simple thing to say. But he's the first person who really in the music business saw their potential. You can remember they were rejected by a lot of record companies in England before EMI and, and even other people at EMI weren't so thrilled with them. And he was the one who really first, when he saw them in the studio early on, saw that potential of their originals, of their harmonies. He made early suggestions to change tempos and, and to sing tighter harmonies. And then later on, he's the guy who didn't flinch 
when John would want a backwards vocal or distorted right. guitar. And, you know, producers back then wouldn't necessarily have been as open-minded as he was. And he was there like, was no let, let these guys do what they right. do, and I'll, I'll kind of guide it, and I'll make suggestions, and I'll sit in the, in the control room and watch them work. But, you know, he really he had a very subtle but strong hand in, in helping them you know, shape their music. And there really, there really wasn't a precedent for that at the time, right? I mean, it would have been so predictable and easy for him to be the older guy who just said, no, that's not how we do things. Right, right. In fact, one of the people I interviewed for the story was Peter Asher, who was, of course, in Peter and Gordon, the British Invasion Group, later worked for Apple Records. And he popped in once in a while to see the the Beatles and, and George Martin at work, which was very rare. They didn't like any outsiders. But he would notice that, yes, like you just said, he, he, he put it exactly the same way. He said they would come up with some idea. John would say, I want my voice to sound like this or that. And anyone else would have said, no. And George would be like, no, that's fine. Let's let's try it. And, you know, Peter would also see George sometimes go out and just take a cup of tea, you know, and just leave them by themselves to kind of work things out and then come back in strategically and check in on them. It was I mean, to be fair, I mean, to be them. fair, the Beatles were a huge group by that time. So there, there yes. certainly was an incentive for George yeah, Martin yeah. to keep up. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. he did keep up. And, and yeah. I, I mean, yeah. I see he's like a kind of a perfect like producer in the sense that he actualized their wishes like he right. you one example you cite in your pieces he really helped uh, Paul McCartney cook up an orchestra for the famous swoop in right. day in the life this idea there's two different songs there and they had this idea of like well how can we bridge them put something in the middle to to meld together John's first part and Paul's second part and then Paul and John's vague idea let's get some orchestra some some string section some real crazy symphonic thing and they got the the string section orchestra into the studio and then it was George Martin's job to tell these classically trained musicians no, you can't play in unison together, all playing the same notes at the same time. You all have to do crazy stuff individually and, like, well, and not listen to the next What do you mean? Exactly. Right. Like, what are you talking about? And it was George Martin who had the also, you know, he studied oboe and piano. He was a musician. So he was able to translate that to those musicians, and we ended up with that great part. He's also the guy who really helped broaden their sound, like with Yesterday. He's right. the one who convinced Paul, like, Let's just have you and a guitar and a little string section. Oh, I believe in yesterday, suddenly. I'm not half the man I used to be. And Paul didn't want that. You know, they didn't make records like that. They made them as the Beatles. And that was step one in them experimenting more in the studio and trying stuff not just as a four-piece rock and roll band. And that, of course, you, that you had huge ramifications. You also mentioned the harpsichord or keyboard yeah, solo. Yeah, and, famous um, in my life, in you my know, life, yeah. like piano part that sounds like a harpsichord. He contributed right. little bits here and there. All those little things he did are now just... Songs that are yeah, these are songs that are embedded in our Western consciousness as, as these classics, and, and he was often the guy who who helped make them happen. Yeah, he, I mean, he didn't obviously write songs with them, but I yeah. mean, he enhanced he their songbook, and he made right. those those records really 
uh, reverberate even more, I think. Yeah. Right. All right. Well, let's get to some reader mail. Okay. This is from the, uh, there's a comment on the site. This is from a, uh, under the reader named Caveat Emptor. Who knows what would, would have become of the Beatles had they not wound up with George Martin as their producer? All right. Well, this is a thought exercise. That is an Ooh, interesting yeah. question. Uh, maybe like the Dave Clark Five, maybe? Uh, that's or what like, I was going to say. Uh, yeah. they could, really? Maybe yeah. could have been like just another one of those, you know, British invasion bands who were just stuck with that two guitar, bass, and drum stuff, but with better songs than right. some of those other than Jerry and the Pacemakers and right. whatnot. Right. Uh, well, I mean, yeah, that's it's an interesting I mean, question. Right. I mean, and it's like the, nothing to take away from Paul McCartney and John Lennon's uh, genius, but, uh, you know, a lot of things have to fall the right way for a band to get huge. And yeah. George Martin was definitely one. Of the things that fell the right way, absolutely. And right. Brian Epstein, their manager. I mean, they had they had a, a team around them of people who each advanced their music and sometimes their business in the best way. You right. Know? All right. Well, the next letter. This is from a reader named If It Makes You Happy. Uh, unfortunately, <laughs> it can't Martin. Can't be that sad. <laughs> uh, unfortunately, Martin wasn't as selfless as legend would have it. According to the memoir of EMI engineer Jeff Emmerich which is an excellent book, uh, who came up with many of the innovations on Revolver, Pepper, and Abbey Road. Certainly true, Emmerich. This is my own commentary, Emmerich. Very important. <laughs> Whenever a photographer came to get behind-the-scenes shots of the Beatles at work, Martin would hustle Emmerich or any other technician out of the studio, so he took center stage. Also gave no album credits. Guy apparently could not give credit where it was due. David, do you have an opinion on that? You know, I spoke with him for the story, and he, uh, you know, I think he's a little more respectful of George Martin now that he's passed away than when right. he wrote that book. But he basically, uh, he would say that, you know, George wasn't, in his memory, Sir George, I guess we can call him now, uh, was not in the studio hands-on as much as maybe legend has it. He would often be up in, up in the control room. And what's interesting about the Abbey Road Studios is that the control room where the producer and the crew engineer and the gear, that was upstairs. And so you look down upon right. the studio. And so George Martin would often be with the Emmerich and those guys up in that room right. looking down. And only occasionally... He was like the Wizard of Oz kind of looking. Exactly, yeah, yeah. exactly. So, you know, I think there's perhaps some truth to the fact that, I mean, who knows, as, as far as, you know, Getting credit, but you know, you also have to remember this was a time when album credits on records were very, very rare. I mean, it really wasn't right. until like the early seventies, maybe, when you would see people actually really wanted to know who, know played, who those yeah. musicians were and Except all that. You, maybe didn't, jazz you didn't records. have that yeah, stuff on right. records. I mean, even on the Beatles, they don't credit uh, Eric Clapton on "While My Guitar Gently Weeps" on the White Album. Right. I mean, unless it was added on a recent reissue, but right. you know. You, that stuff was was not considered important, I think. It was a enough. different time. We'll, it was. we'll come to the back. And now we're back to that time yeah. in the MP3 era when nobody knows what uh, anybody does. It's that's all another come episode. Back okay. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, let's. All right. Uh, this is a final letter. Uh, this is from uh, a reader named Ant Con. Uh, <laughs> why did the Beatles go with Phil Spector on Let It Be? Ah. Well, that's a whole complicated story. George Martin actually did the. Recorded the original Let It Be sessions, right. which, if we remember, was just them in this very kind of cold, huge cold uh, warehouse kind of uh, facility, playing live and being filmed. And every, it was such a miserable experience that those tapes in that movie, which became Let It Be, were basically shelved for about a year. Like it was nobody even wanted to go back to it. They just said, "Forget it. It's a failed project. We're going to make Abbey Road." So then, what happens is. They decide a year or so later, well, let's do something. They have Alan Klein is now involved. He wants to right. get the product out there. Like, what about that 
movie and that album. Right. And so Klein and Spectre were collaborators, were coworkers. Right. So Klein basically got Spectre in to kind of sweeten up the tracks. He didn't like. I think John Lennon liked the idea too, right? Was uh, he one of the big? Uh, yes. Uh, uh, Paul was furious. I've actually looked in the legal files in London of the Brit- of the Beatles lawsuits, and you see the letter from Paul that he wrote to Apple and to Phil Spector because uh, what happened was that Spector added all that stuff on Long and Winding Road, the choir and the strings. Right. He, rec- he added it. Then they sent Paul a finished copy saying, here you go. The Long and Winding Road that leads to your door. Paul wrote this furious letter saying, do you do never do this again. Yeah. <laughs> you know, Understandably. This is my work. Yeah. yeah. I yeah. mean, it's, it's pretty you, unprecedented yeah. that that would have happened to them. And actually, uh, I mean, as a coda, like, he hated that version so much, the ver- version that most people know, he actually came out with that album, Let It Be Naked. Yes. Well, that Beatles, yes. you know, that, which is kind of a remix of Let It Be, minus a lot of that syrupy Phil Spector That's stuff. That's right. That, that was, was about a revenge. decade or so ago. The long and winding. be honest, I like the strings in choir better. Maybe well, I'm in by the now we just know that it's all we've known. So know, yeah, exactly. we're just used to that. But I think it's yeah. beautiful, actually. Right. But uh, right. but yeah, so that's that's the kind of long George Martin story. wouldn't have let that happen. Yeah. So that's for sure. Yeah. He might not, or he would have told Paul. I don't think George was uh, averse to string sections, but right. I think he would have had them more involved. He, he would have, yeah. He would have been <laughs> a better mediator. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Let's talk one, one last minute about, yeah. like, what did George Martin go on to do after the Beatles? Like, what, what, what would you say are, were his, his, his finest works after the Beatles? You know, his, his career after the Beatles in rock and roll, which was maybe 10 or 15 years or so, found him basically sort of riding the wave of 70s rock and what, what right. rock became after the Beatles. You know, he did um, he was on know, Fusion James- with the Mount Vision Orchestra and Jeff Beck. He did America, who was like a, you know, folk rock pop band. He did um, yeah, Cheap Trick. I mean, you know, right. he did Ultravox. He did a New Wave record. Well, you, you, know, you talked to Rick Nielsen or got Rick some Nielsen, quotes from Rick Nielsen for Rick your Nielsen, piece, Rick Nielsen, who right? said that... Um, uh, did remember uh, George just being a well-dressed guy in the studio. Still, in 1980, he was wearing college shirts and all that. Uh, and he did bring something. He, he, Nielsen said that he, he felt that Martin would never look down on them. And, and that's another thing that Peter Asher told me about Martin working with the Beatles that made him really pivotal. Even though he had this classical background, even though he was not a rock and roller and he hated distorted guitars and things like that, he never had a snobby kind of air about him. Uh, yeah, yeah that, it was yeah. very interesting. Maybe because he was a working class, he came from a working class family. Well, that, that's he an interesting regal, point, right? But, yeah, but he, he was he not looked, that. Right, you know? right. That's an interesting yeah. point. Like, do you remember what his parents did? I mean, his he came mom from... was a nurse and his dad was a carpenter. Right. Jeff Beck told me a funny story about you know how he thought that when he worked with George Martin in uh, 1974 and five on those two great fusion albums of his, Blow by Blow and Wired. Uh, his first time he worked with George Martin, and he said his first person he ever met in rock who, who spoke Queen's English, and he joked once to his keyboard player, like, after the sessions, let's tail him in our car and see if he drives to Buckingham Palace. Because, <laughs> yeah, it was sort of a joke, but they right. actually, that's the one thing you heard. I was like, he, he seemed like 
people would think, is he actually a member of the royal family? But it was <laughs> he something just... he kind of grew into, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. he did. He yeah. did. And I mean, really I, interesting. I, they, I liked what you touched on, though, about his openness. It seems like that was kind of the key things. And instead, of, he, he was. wasn't a hedgehog who kind of has all these ideas that right. he doesn't move off of. He was a fox. You yeah, know? And he kind yeah. of was able to adapt. He he was he was and he, he was open to experimentation and he did and he didn't have that snobbery that so many people in the music business had about rock and roll in the sixties and we forget that that was there there right. was this sense of well that's not the real music it's a fad it'll right. come and go we'll make some money right but that's not it's not jazz it's not Sinatra you know and he didn't you know he might have had a little bit of that early on it's possible but that was all dispensed with within a few years, and, and Martin was definitely not, uh, he, he was not condescending to right. the musicians he worked with, which is another, you know, huge point in his favor. But Paz never did give nothing to the Tin Man That he didn't, didn't already have I talked to Jerry Beckley from America, and who and he, Martin produced like half a dozen of their records, and and had some of his biggest hits with America, uh, with Sister Golden Hair and Tin Man and Lonely People and that stuff. And he said once George Martin told him that he made more money, he Martin made more money off America records than Beatle records, because back then in the '60s producers didn't right. get a big share. That changed. Right. But I was in the sixties, especially from that era with Martin. You were more of just you were just like a staffer who staff showed producer. up, producer. Right, and it was only a few years in when Martin Martin started his own production company and started making more money. But I was like, oh my god! I thought he's made more money off of Tin Man, right? <laughs> and he did off of <laughs> Where's the justice in that? <laughs> exactly. But hey, he did all right. Exactly, yeah. crazy, crazy business sometimes. David Brown, thanks for coming in. Thanks, Nathan. All right, and that's it for Rolling Stone Music Now. If you like what you heard, please leave a nice review on iTunes and maybe subscribe. Welcome to Talkville, the ultimate Smallville rewatch podcast. Guest star Sarah Carter as Alicia Baker. Although I didn't really work with her a lot. But Tom did, and they had some real big smoochy scenes. Yeah. Can we talk about that? Could there be any more sex? What was a three-page makeout scene that just kept going? Good Lord. We get it. They have chemistry. Jump in now or catch up on any of the past seasons of Talkville on YouTube or wherever you listen.